continuing our series through the book of Leviticus. So if you're visiting with us, this is typically what we do. We go through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves in the midst of a series on Leviticus. And we are in Leviticus chapter 21. Pastor Dale read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read verse 6. You could follow along. If you, have a, if you don't have a Bible with you, we should have these church Bibles. They look something like this in the little compartment in front of you. It says Legacy Standard Bible on it. And it's on page 166 and 67 is where we're at. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 6. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they, speaking of the priests, bring near the offerings to Yahweh by fire, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we ask for your help as we seek to hear from you this morning. Give us understanding into your word, give us a heart that believes. In Jesus' name, amen. Aaron must have been very proud on that day as he saw his two boys ordained for the ministry of the priesthood. They were all decked out in their priestly attire. They had gone through all the ceremony All the anointings and washings and all that took place with that sacred ordination ceremony. And then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, entered into that most holy place of that sacred tent in Leviticus chapter 10. And Moses records that they offered strange fire unto the Lord. Which leaves us asking questions. What does that mean? What was this strange fire? But obviously it was something. They were doing something that they were not commanded to do. And in that moment. God struck Nadab and Abihu dead. They were in the presence of the holy God. And did something that they were not supposed to do. And in Leviticus chapter 10, it says, So Aaron, the father of the two boys, kept silent. As Moses said, it was what Yahweh spoke, saying, By by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. Those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. It's a shocking passage, right? As R.C. Sproul said, we love to sing about God's amazing grace, but not so much about his amazing justice, because that's what we're often amazed by, right? His amazing holiness, where he puts the severity of his justice and holiness on display with a passage like that. Well, we find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 22, I'm sorry, 21. 
Leviticus chapter 21, where there's more regulations for the priests, okay? Now, when we talk about a priest, normally when you hear the word priest, you think of some guy with a clerical collar, maybe sitting behind a a veiled, small closet-like room. You bring your confession of sins to them. We think of the Roman Catholic priesthood, right? Well, as we're going to see later on, the the priesthood was fulfilled in Christ. In one sense, there are no priests in that sense today. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, today. But we see this idea of priesthood throughout the Scripture. And the priest, it's, it's helpful to think of the priest in this way. Here's my, here's my visual picture of the priest. Okay? This is the prophet. Okay? The prophet is, is representing God and speaking to the people of God. But the priest is representing the people speaking to God. And the priests were involved with the sacrificial system, all these sacrifices of the animals. And, and, and there was, there was a, a tremendous amount of regulation that was involved in what they could do, but also in who they were. In fact, it was very specific. They were to be descendants of Aaron. They had to be physical, biological descendants of Aaron. They were of the tribe of Levi. If you remember, in ancient Israel, there was 12 different tribes. And so it was from the tribe of Levi that these priests came from. And so when we go through chapter 21, we're going to read different regulations about who the priests could marry, who they couldn't marry, how they were to relate to mourning rituals. And it's going to seem very... Very weird, to be honest with you, okay? But I trust that as, if you bear with me, by the end of it, you'll, you'll come to a little bit better understanding. So we're going to just walk our way through Leviticus chapter 21, and then at the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two important areas where God shows us the priority of holiness in this passage. So chapter 21, verse 21 or verse 1, then Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. So this is very similar to many of the other passages we see in the book of Leviticus, where God is directly speaking to Moses, and then God gives instruction to Moses, this is what I want you to say to these people. And many times in the previous chapters, we saw that God said to Moses, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel. In other words, tell everybody in Israel about this. But in this instance, it says, speak to the sons of Aaron. So these are specific instructions related to Aaron's sons, which Aaron was Moses' brother. Okay? And these instructions are given, and we're going to see at the end, if you look at the end of this chapter... So Moses spoke to Aaron and his sons and to all the sons of Israel. Okay? So it's specific instructions for the sons of Aaron who were to be the priests, but also all of Israel was listening. And this was a kind of accountability, right? Just like the Constitution of the United States has certain criteria for who 
uh, is the president of the United States. I think he has to be at least 35 years old. He has to be an American-born citizen of this country. There's certain criteria, and everybody knows, right? All you have to do is read the Constitution, so there's a kind of accountability, you know, that you can't put somebody into office who doesn't fit those requirements. And so a similar, in a similar way, there are certain requirements for the priest. And then he's also, later on in this section, he's going to give more specific requirements for those who would be the high priest, which the high priest we saw in Leviticus chapter 16, they had a specific job description related to the Day of Atonement, okay? So, second part of verse 1. No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his blood relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father, and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has no husband. For For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage, among his people, and so profane himself. So you say, what is this talking about here? There's instructions for the priests, which the priests were again involved with the sacrifices they served at the altar, that they were not allowed to come into contact with certain dead, with, with, with corpses, with the dead, okay? And there was actually a whole kind of ceremony related to washings in order for the priest to be readmitted back into the tabernacle, which that was the tent where the sacrifices were brought. And so here, it's giving stipulations that, that basically the priest is allowed to attend funerals of only a select few, namely his closest blood relatives. Anybody else's funeral, he wasn't even allowed to go to, okay? And this, again, is because of the stipulation that God did not want death to contaminate his sacred tent because he is the God of life. Verse 5, they shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor, nor make any cuts in their flesh. Okay, so we talked about these uh, regulations back in previous chapters. What does this talk about? You know, baldness on the head. You know, some of you may read that and think, well, immediately I'm eliminated. I can't be a priest. These were certain mourning rituals that were practiced by the pagans. Certain shavings of the head, certain shavings of the beard, certain cuttings. Remember, we even saw that with, uh, on Mount Carmel with Elijah, cutting of the flesh to get the attention of the gods. And so God's saying, I don't want you to mourn in the same way that the pagans who worship all their different pagan gods. No, no, no. You're not, they're not allowed to do that. So these are regulations. What kind of funerals they were allowed to attend? What kind of mourning practices they were allowed to be involved in? And one one commentator, Jay Sklar, in commenting on this, says, The Lord calls the priest to a special role as those who serve constantly in the courts of his palace. So the God of Israel is a king. And the priests 
are like his, are, are those who serve in his palace, which the, the tabernacle was something of his palace. And since the Lord is a holy king, it is especially important that his palace servants maintain their holy status, not only so that they can come near to him, but also to communicate to the people how much God values holiness. And if the palace servants desecrate their holy status, it would show that they thought little of their privileged position and could suggest to others that the king cared little about his holiness. And so, when the priests were outside the tabernacle, there were certain regulations related to mourning, related to funerals. And, and almost this could be likened to, imagine, uh, I remember a hundred years ago when I was a nursing student, uh, we, we had to spend one semester in, uh, in, in the operating room as a, you know, to observe surgical nursing. Okay, what that looked like, and the idea was to learn what that looks like, if that's uh, a kind of nursing that you want to get into. But, you know, the, the surgeons would often have an assistant, and the assistant's job was to, you know, count all the, the uh, you know, the, the uh, instruments uh, before and after the surgery because you don't want to sew somebody back up with, you know, scissors still lying in them. That's a nice thought, right? Um, But imagine this surgical assistant, and imagine he has to go outside of the operating room. There would be all kinds of potential for contamination when he comes back in to the operating room, right? You know, and so there would be a need for him to, you know, wash up and gown up again, take off the old gown. Well, in a somewhat similar kind of way... The, the tabernacle was a holy place. And the priests were those surgical assistants that needed to be cleansed and needed to be holy. And, if they went, and, and as they went outside of the tabernacle, there was all kinds of potential for contamination with death that God did not want in His tabernacle. Verse 7, not only that, who they married was important. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. So they weren't allowed to marry a woman who was a, uh, a harlot, who had sold her body for money, nor even a divorced person. Now, now there was, there's also a very practical... Um, There's a very practical aspect to this regulation as well. Namely, uh, a man who marries a harlot, the potential for uh, that woman to be impregnated by somebody who was not the husband and for it to be somebody who wasn't a descendant of Aaron would have increased the likelihood. And again, God had specific standards. This had to be descendants of Aaron. Who sat as who who functioned as priest? Not anybody. Verse eight. Therefore, you shall set him apart as holy, for he brings near the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I Yahweh, who makes you holy, am holy. So again, here's a kind of summary statement: that God is the one who sets 
these descendants of Aaron apart to be holy, to be set apart for him. And he calls for the standard of holiness. And But notice this interesting phrase, for he brings near the food of your God. Now we may read that and say, well, I didn't know God eats. What, you know, what, what kind of diet is God on? Well, obviously God does not eat. He does not need food. In fact, he says in Psalm 50, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Because I don't need anything, okay? So what is this talk? Well, these sacrifices were often communal meals, right? They were communal meals, sometimes uh, participated by the priest and the offerer, the worshiper, and also by the Lord. Certain portions of the sacrifices went to the Lord. If it was a whole burnt offering that we saw in chapter 1, all of it was consumed unto the Lord. But so, so they were involved in a communal meal, these priests. Also, verse 9. Stipulations regarding their daughters. Also the priests, also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So here, the stipulation that a priest couldn't serve, he would be profane, even if his children, here specifically his daughter, engages in prostitution. And, and like the law that we saw in the previous chapter, those who engaged in prostitution, they would have been stoned, and then their bodies would have been burned with fire. And then now come regulations regarding the high priest, verse 10. And the priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been ordained to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person nor defile himself even for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God for the dedication of the anointing oil is on him. I am Yahweh. And so what is this talking about? So there, just like in the tabernacle, there was varying degrees of holiness. You know, you had kind of the outer court and then you would get into the holy place and then there was the the holy of holy section where there was the Ark of the Covenant and that intermost holy, holy of holies, that was where only one person went once a year. And so just as there was varying degrees of holiness with the tabernacle, there was varying degrees of holiness amongst God's people. They were all to be holy. All the congregation was to be holy. But then it got more narrow that the descendants of Aaron... The priests had to, there was regulations here regarding who they can marry and what kind of funerals they could attend. So there was a, kind of a greater degree of holiness. And then when you get to the high priest, who again, this is the person who goes into that holy of holies one day of year, there was even a greater regulation, a, a, a kind of stricter standard of holiness, Namely, that they weren't allowed to attend any funerals. 
They weren't allowed any contact with the dead. And notice, these are the ones who, if you were to go back to Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, there was this great ceremony related to the ordination of these priests. They were the highest priests. They're described here as those who received the anointing oil. And this is, again, this is very important when you think about a term that we throw around regularly, right? Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. And it, it's, it's very important. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. It's a title because he is the fulfillment of the three anointed offices of the Old Testament. Namely, the prophets were anointed, the priests as we see here were anointed, and the kings were anointed. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, or here's the Hebrew, for, the Hebrew word, Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent of Christos, the Greek Christ. It simply means anointed one. And so now, hopefully, in the midst of the obscurity of these odd regulations, you're beginning to see, ah, this is how the story fits together. There's regulations for the high priest. In regards to marriage, verse 13, he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he shall take a virgin of his own people as a wife, so that he will not profane his seed among his people. For I am Yahweh who makes him holy. So again, here's this even greater standard, the the, the woman that the priest would marry, uh, this woman had to be a virgin. Had to be of Israel. And then verse 16, this is going to get really awkward. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Aaron. So now here's more regulations for the entire priesthood. So he's talked about your garden variety priest. He's talking about the high priest. Now he's going to talk again about all the priests. Speak to the sons of Aaron. No man of your seed throughout their generations who has a defect shall come near to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall come near a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any disfigured limb or any man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. Ouch. No man of the seed of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect shall approach to bring near the offering of Yahweh by fire, since he has a defect. He shall not approach to bring near the food of his God. He may eat of the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, so, he has, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries. For I am Yahweh who makes them holy. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to the sons and to all the sons 
of, and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. So, you read that and think, okay, this doesn't seem to fly with the uh, American Disabilities Act. <laughs> this seems very exclusive. Handicapped people, disabled people were not allowed to function in the priesthood. And I know, I mean, for some of you, you may be sitting here and that doesn't seem right. That doesn't sound fair. Hold that thought. Okay. Hold that thought. We'll come, we'll come back to it. There were similar regulations, by the way, when we get to chapter 22 related to the sacrifices. You know, couldn't be a disfigured animal. So what, what do we gather from this? What, what do we take away? I mean, it, again, these are... Regulations that seem strange, seem weird, odd, related to mourning practices, contact with the dead, also people with disfigurement. There, there seems to be a kind of disobedience, disfigurement, and death. The priests couldn't be coming into contact with, and God himself couldn't be coming into contact. So what, what do we learn from this? Well, I think a lot of these rituals were, were related to the reality of the holiness of the priests. We see this. That's obvious. The, the, the repetition of the word holy and coming near and drawing near to God are repeated over and over. And so certainly, as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, we see in the Old Testament, in all the ceremonies, whether it's the sacrifices, whether it's the priesthood, whether it's the blood, all of these pictures are object lessons that we find their fulfillment. The pictures are fulfilled in the reality of Christ. Just like a shadow. There's a little bit of light coming this way. I can see my shadow. That shadow is in a kind of image of me. It's a kind of picture. You can see my silhouette. You can see my love handle sticking out in that silhouette there, okay? If you were to have my viewpoint here. But it's a shadow. It's not me, right? But it points to me. And so the, these ceremonies in the Old Testament, they are shadows that point to the reality that is fulfilled in Christ. Well, what reality will be, will be fulfilled in Christ? Namely, the holiness of the high priest. You see, by the time we get to the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one who stands between man and God and represents people before the holy God so that man can approach this holy God. And it's of the utmost necessity that the high priest be absolutely holy, be without any taint or blemish of sin. Listen to a couple of these verses. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. If you have nimble fingers and can find it quickly, you can read it yourself. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, the author of Hebrews says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. It was fitting for us to have a high priest who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And this is what we see when the Lord Jesus came. He was without sin. He was without stain. He was without defilement. He was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And the priesthood of the Old, Old Testament was a shadow that pointed to that reality that was fulfilled in Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, for some of you grammar Nazis, that's very annoying because it's a double negative. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, which is to say, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And listen to what it says here, Hebrews 4.15. But one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted just like we are tempted, and yet he never gave in. He never disobeyed. And this is one of the reasons why the uh, why the authors of the gospel will record Jesus being tempted by Satan in the desert and each time Jesus withstanding that temptation and saying, no, Satan, him rebuking Satan and him obeying the Father. This is why the gospel writers record Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's tempted to, to not go to the cross, but he submits to the will of the Father and he obeys the Father, demonstrating that he is that perfect, holy high priest that all these regulations pointed to. We say, okay, that sounds nice, Matt, but what, what's the significance? You see, it's very important for us to understand that we... We all have representatives. In fact, that's even how our government works, right? Whether you like it or not, you have a representative, okay? Whether you voted for that person or not, that's your representative. In a similar way, each of us are born into homes. We have fathers. We have parents. Those parents are our representatives. They make decisions on our behalf. They represent us. Adam in the Garden of Eden, in a very real sense, was a kind of a priest. He was also a kind of a king. He was a representative for humanity. And in that garden, the serpent came and tempted him and Eve. And they did not do well with that temptation. God said that they could eat from any tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam and Eve believed the lies of the serpent, and they disobeyed. And ever since then, every human being born into this world, save Jesus, has Adam as their representative, Adam as their high priest. 
You don't want Adam as your high priest. You don't want a representative before God who is guilty. Because that means you have the sentence of death hanging over your head. That means you have the sentence of judgment hanging over your head. You need a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. You need a high priest who perfectly obeyed God, who can stand before God and say, as your representative, as, as perfectly righteous, because that is the standard as we see in the book of Leviticus to be able to be accepted in the presence of God is spotless holiness, spotless righteousness. And so this is what we have in Jesus. We have a representative who because of his holiness, you can be accepted before this holy God. You can stand before him not because you're perfectly righteous in and of yourself. You're not. Your children know that. Your friends know that. Your co-workers know that. Your spouse knows that. We all know that, right? You can delude yourself and say, no, I'm a good person. No, we know that we fail in multitudes of ways. We're often a selfish people looking out for our own interests to the exclusion of others. Often grumpy and crabby. Snarky with one another. And we deserve God's judgment. And we're born into this world with Adam as our representative before God. And we are guilty in Adam and we are guilty in ourselves. But you can have a high priest who has a perfect record before God. That's what you need. Friend, don't try to stand before this holy God representing yourself. You, you heard the old adage in the law courts, right? He who has himself as a representative has a fool for a lawyer, right? You've heard of the, the folly of people trying to stand before a judge representing their, themselves. I guess unless you're Jim Traffic in, in federal court. But by and large, it never works out, right? In fact, the, the two occasions I, was, I, I, I didn't actually get to serve on jury duty. I made it to the point of selection. And uh, the, one, the one case, the person was trying to represent themselves. No, you know. It didn't look like it was going very well. He didn't know what he was doing, okay? You don't want to represent yourself before the holy judge of the universe. You want somebody with a spotless record. You can trust in him. He has a spotless record of righteousness. And get this, this high priest also became the sacrifice. So he has this perfect record of righteousness. And he will grant that record to you as your representative. And he will absorb all the punishment that you deserve. That's what he did on the cross. That's why he died. Friends, this is good news for sinners like you and I. That we are accepted before God, not on the basis of our own merits, but on the basis 
of this great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Thomas Goodwin, in referring to Romans chapter 5 and Adam and Christ, he says this, Paul speaks of them as if there had never been any more men in the world, nor ever to be for, for time to come, except these two, namely Adam and Jesus. And why? Because these two between them had all the rest of the sons of men hanging at their girdle. Either Adam is your representative or Jesus is. Either Adam is your priest or Jesus is your priest. I choose Jesus to be my priest. And I think you should too. Embrace Jesus as your only holiness, your perfect holiness, your unchanging holiness, your heavenly holiness, your eternal holiness, your effective holiness to bring you to glory to the very presence of the holy God. So, that's the first area of holiness, the holiness of the high priest. The second area, there's only two points this morning, you get a discount. Or maybe you're getting cheated. I don't know. One of the two. The second is the holiness of the heavenly people. The holiness of the heavenly people. Thank you for not walking out on me offended because Leviticus 21, contrary to the American Disabilities Act. You've stuck with me. So what on earth is going on here? Why would the Bible prohibit from serving in the priesthood anyone with any deformities or any contact with death? Well, the explanation, I think, goes back to the tabernacle being a kind of a replica of the Garden of Eden. If I ask you, where, where did the priest work? Where was his place of occupation? Where does a farmer work? He works on a farm, right? If you work at Tax 29, that's your work place. If you work in a prison as a corrections officer, that's your work place. If you work as a nurse or a doctor in the medical field, the hospital, the ambulance, that's your work place. If you're a homemaker, the home is your workplace. You get the point? If you are a priest, where do you clock in at? The tabernacle. That's your workplace. And later on, the temple. The tabernacle was a kind of tent, and it was a more temporary dwelling structure. And then later on, David and uh, David, David set it up, and Solomon was involved with the building of the temple. And all the, the, the design of the tabernacle is regulated in the book of Exodus, Exodus 28, 29, 30, all those lengthy chapters that, that seem very tedious on, on how the tabernacle was to be built. 
It was all a kind of a replica of Eden. We talked about this earlier in the series, but just by way of review, and some of you I know weren't here for that, so I'm just going to remind you. Remember what was outside the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Flaming swords. Who was wielding those flaming swords? Cherubim, right? The curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. What was to be embroidered on the curtain? Cherubim. How about above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat with wings spread out facing one another? What was there? Cherubim. The only other time cherubim are mentioned up to this point in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, cherubim with flaming swords. The point, this is like Eden. This is the very presence of God. This is where man dwells with holy God. This is the presence of God on earth. What else? We can go on and on, but the lampstand that was within the tabernacle, it looked just like A tree. Was there a tree in the garden? Yes, there was a tree. Again, we can go on and on with the imagery, even the language in the Garden of Eden of working and serving the garden is the same language that's used of the priests later on, what they were to be doing in the tabernacle. The point being is that the tabernacle was a kind of replica of Eden. Will you say, so what? Well, the significance of this is that unholiness was not allowed in Eden, but also unwholeness was not allowed in Eden. Not only unholiness, sin, rebellion, but unwholeness, the consequences of sin, disease, disability, defect, cancer, death. That was not permitted in Eden. In fact, listen to the language of Genesis 3.22 when God drives them out of Eden. In Genesis 3.22 and 23, it says, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he send forth his hand and take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. In other words... Man had to be removed from the Garden of Eden or he would live forever in that fallen, broken, diseased condition. And so God said, in order for man to be able to come back to Eden, things have to be dealt with. But until now, scram. And so when there's instructions related to the tabernacle, because the tabernacle was a kind of replica of Eden unholiness and unwholeness were not permitted in the tabernacle. Disobedience as well as deformity and death were not allowed in the tabernacle. And this gets good, really good here. Okay. Because as you read the storyline of the Bible... It begins with Eden, and it ends with Eden. A kind of Eden 2.0. 
It starts out in Torah with tabernacle and eventually temple. And the end of the story ends with temple and tabernacle. It begins with God dwelling with man. And it ends with God dwelling with man. That's the end of the story. So what happens in between? The champion, the Savior comes in between. And he deals with disobedience. When he hangs on that Roman cross and he in his own body bears the judgment of hell upon himself. When he is suspended between heaven and earth and is crucified. So much that there's the promise of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He deals with disobedience. He also deals with deformity. We see this in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. In the inbreaking of the kingdom on earth. He touches lepers. And the clean one makes the unclean clean. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. And by the way, I, did, I, I, I didn't mention this, but we read Leviticus 21 here about the deformed not allow, being allowed to serve in the priesthood. Remember in chapter 19, there was laws against not abusing or using those who are blind, who are lame. God is very concerned about those with disabilities. And, and that's why we, we need to understand the whole of this, why this is important. And also he deals with death. The high priest of old was not allowed to attend funerals. Jesus attended three funerals. And he broke them up. (laughs) The widow of Nain's boy is being brought along. And Jesus sees the widow and nobody there to take care of her. And he ends it. Jairus' daughter, Jesus, in, in that tenderness, he says, Talitha kum, get up, my daughter. And she gets up. And then, his buddy, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, he dies. And they had been pleading with Jesus to come and heal him before he dies. But Jesus waited till he died. And then he stands outside that tomb. And he tells them to roll the tomb away. To roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. And friends, all of that is but an appetizer. An appetizer for what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, the empty tomb, which he becomes the first fruits of the future resurrection. You see, friends, far from being a passage that excludes or shames those with disability, disease, deformity, And death, it is the hope of those with deformity and death. 
Because God Almighty will undo all deformity, disease, and death in the world to come in the resurrection. When he summons forth out of the grave his people and they are resurrected and glorified with bodies that are without disease, that are without disobedience, that are without death. And so Revelation 21 says this. I told you it ends like this. In 21.2, John records, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. There's no funerals in the world to come. That's why God didn't allow his holy priest to attend funerals. There's no deformity in the world to come. That's why God didn't allow those with deformity and disease to serve in the tabernacle. Because it's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the Eden 2.0. And so, my dear friends, far from being a passage that excludes or shames those with disability, it is your very hope. It is your very hope that God undoes all the ruin and miseries that has been brought forth in this world. But He doesn't do it for everybody. Only those who are hid in the high priests. Only those who have trusted in Jesus as their high priests. There is tremendous hope for the world to come. Friend, are you living with that hope? You look at this world, it's depressing, right? Some of you need to ration out how much news you listen to and watch. Never, probably in the history of humanity, have we been more aware of all the tragedy and suffering that is in this world. Now, now this world from Adam on has been filled with suffering that people have experienced. But now we know about everybody else's. Bombarded by it regularly. And it's easy to despair. It's easy to get anxious and wonder what, where in the world is Almighty God? What on earth is happening? But friend, if you know the end of the story, you can have hope. It's like the classic sports network. You know, when you watch those games that were played some years ago, your favorite team, and you know they win. <laughs> you can watch it and enjoy it. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know we're going to come back and win. Well, in a similar way, when you know the end of the story, but the end of the story we find the foundation of it here in Leviticus chapter 21. Let me close with a poem. This poem was written by John Piper. It's called Glorified. I'm not going to read the whole poem. 
But listen to this line. He's, he's describing in poetic imagery the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. He says, and in the twinkling of the eye, the saints descended from the sky. And as he knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass. I saw my dog, old Blackie, fast. And as she could come, she leaped the stream almost. And what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink. I knew that I was on the brink of endless joy and everywhere. I turned. I saw a wonder there. A big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. And there old Beryl and Arnold too, still holding hands beneath the blue and crystal sky. No stoop. They stand erect. No tremor in their hand. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift his voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free. And every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within. And every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ. The mind and heart to understand. And love the sovereign Lord who planned. That it should take eternity to lavish his grace on me. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that in these strange, obscure regulations concerning holiness in the priesthood, we find hope. We find tremendous hope of the world to come, a restored Eden, no longer a tabernacle that comes to us in picture and shadow, but the reality, the substance that's in the world to come where God dwells with man in a renewed and restored world. Lord, we long and look for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.